Amen. Amen. All right. Well, it is a pleasure to be here, to be back in Promontory. Last week, I was down at the Chilliwack campus, and uh, it's, always, it's always fun to go down there and to kind of get to be with uh, our, our Chilliwack campus, but it's always good to be home here again. And so it's, it's a joy for me to be here with you all on this long weekend. And so as we start off, I, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question, and that is, what is on your bucket list? What, what's on your bucket list? What's on the, the list of things that you want to do before you die? What, what has made that list for you? Right? For a lot of people, it's, it's things like traveling to different countries and you know, experiencing all these other cultures and foods and being able to, to see all the different sights that you can around this world. So sometimes it's things like experiences, right? You want to go bungee jumping. You want to go skydiving. You want to do something that, that you've never done before. Or, or maybe your bucket list is a little bit more something like, you know, I just want to spend time with, with family, with friends. I, I want to make sure that I actually have these relationships with other people. Well, I came across an article uh, last week as I was searching through, and, and I came across this woman who was trying to check off one more thing on her bucket list. She had been diagnosed with cancer. The doctor said, look, this, there, there's nothing really more we can do. And so she decided with her, her remaining time, she wanted to take a vacation. So she rounded up her whole family and said, all right, the whole family is going down to Barbados and we're going to have a, a great time, you know, one last really good memory to share as a family together. And so they went down to Barbados, but, but there was one little catch. And the catch was because she was sick, because she had been diagnosed, she couldn't get travel insurance for her trip, but she thought, you know what, it's fine, right, I'll be all right, let's just go and enjoy our time. Well, she went down and certainly they enjoyed it until about halfway through when suddenly she got extra sick, she had to end up going into the hospital down there and the doctor said, actually, we need to get you back home to your doctor so that they can treat you properly. So they flew her on an emergency flight back to Canada. When she landed back in Canada, she got the medical attention she needed, but she also ended up with a bill. She ended up with a medical bill for the amount of $52,000. Now, this woman who had just spent pretty much her life savings on this final trip realized she couldn't pay it, and actually her children ended up having to pay that bill for her. It decimated basically all of their savings all at once. What, what started out was, what, was such a good idea, but it turned out so badly. The memory she ended up creating was not really the one she wanted to. Now, I'm not going to be too harsh on this woman because I think we can all understand the motivation there, right? We can all understand that motivation that says, you know, I, I want to make the best use of the time I have left. The question is always, how do we do that? The question is, how do we make the best use of the time that we have, and what does that look like? And so this morning, that's really the question I want us to consider as we start opening up the Word of God. If you have a Bible with you, I'll invite you to open to Philippians chapter 1. We're in Philippians chapter 1 and starting in verse 18, and, and Paul is really wrestling with that very question. What does it look like? to make the best use of your time. 
and how do we actually do that? So with that question in mind, I'll invite you to follow along with me, Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start at the second half of verse 18. It's the beginning of a new paragraph, so, so follow along with me. This is what the Word of God says. It says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again." Well, as far as we're going to read this morning, would you bow your heads just one more time in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you that you do speak to us, that you do not leave us to ourselves, but that you, you speak and you call us to understand what you have said and that we are called to give our lives for you. Lord, I thank you that when we pray, you hear us, that you act, that prayer is not merely into into the air, but rather before the throne room of God. So, Father, I pray, would we fix our eyes on the gain that is above as we give our lives to serving Christ. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, our passage is really jumping into the middle of a conversation, right? Paul has been, has been talking to this church for a little while, and he's been kind of catching them up on what's going on with him. Right, if you've been with us for the past little while, you'll know that Paul is writing this letter while he is in jail. Paul has been sitting in a jail in Rome, waiting to be put on trial before Caesar. And so he writes this letter to the Philippian church. He says, here's what's going on in my life. I want you to understand. And while you might think that this is a letter where, where it's pretty tense, Right? Paul is waiting to, to go on trial. There, there should be a lot of hand wringing and a lot of nervousness and a lot of anxiety. And yet, this is the book of joy. Paul writes this whole book and he is rejoicing all throughout. Right? We started off and we looked. Paul is rejoicing over what God has done in the church. And then he is rejoicing over what God is still doing in his life. Even as he is in chains, the gospel is free, and so he gets to rejoice. And so this morning, what we're doing is we're picking up into that conversation, and he's looked at what God's done in the church now, and now he's looking what God is going to do in the future. He's looking forward and saying, this is what God is going to be doing in my life. Now, if you remember, he is in Rome at this time, and he is awaiting trial before Caesar. If you remember at the end of the book of Acts, Paul is captured, he's, he's put in jail, he's put before uh, a number of different trials, and then he says, I want to appeal my case before Caesar, right? Paul was a Roman citizen. That was his right. He could do that, but not a lot of people did that very often, Right? See, it was, it was a dangerous thing to appeal your case before Caesar because what would happen is there would be one of two outcomes. If you went before Caesar, there's two outcomes that would happen. He would hear your case, and he'd say, you're right. 
you are innocent, and immediately you would be set free, right? The Caesar in Rome says you're innocent, you're innocent. That is wiping clean your criminal record. It's done, you walk out that day. However, if Caesar came and said, no, you're guilty, that was straight to an execution. And so Paul is very literally sitting here thinking forward and saying, this trial is going to be a matter of life and death. And he's asking himself, well, what does it look like to make the best use of my time? What does it look like to to use my time here well? And so this morning, that's really what I want us to to walk through and, and to investigate. What does it look like to use our time well? How is it that Paul, in this moment of of tension and anxiety, is rejoicing? What what exactly is he rejoicing over? So this morning, I want us to really see these three things, and that's simply that Paul can rejoice because he is confident in in their prayer. He is able to rejoice because there is a greater gain that is coming up ahead, and he can rejoice because his life is fixed on Christ. All right, so that's where we're going to go this morning. That's what we're going to look at. So start with me in verse 18. We're going to look at Paul's, his confidence in prayer. All right, verse 18 says this. Paul continues and he says, yes, and I will rejoice. He's just talked about how much he has to rejoice because of what God's doing. And I will, I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So Paul here, he's talking about him being put in prison. He's saying his prison sentence that he is dealing with at the moment, that's going to turn out for his deliverance. Actually, he's saying, I expect that at this trial, I will be set free. In fact, he kind of repeats that in verse 25. He says, convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all. He has this expectation that he is going to go free. But I think he has something else in mind. See, I I think Paul does actually go free at the end of this. But I think when he's writing this, he has something bigger in mind. Look at what verse 20 says. He says, I have, I, uh, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. See, Paul expects I'm going to be vindicated. I will not be put to shame. But he continues and he says, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul is saying here, I expect to be vindicated. I will not be put to shame whether I live or whether I die. Whether I'm found innocent or whether I'm found guilty, I will not be put to shame. And we're left wondering, what are you talking about, Paul? How is it that if you get put to death, you're not going to be put to shame? How is that not you being condemned? That doesn't turn out for your deliverance. Well, see, here's what's interesting is that that word there, deliverance, can also be translated as salvation, He's expecting that this will work out for his salvation. And so I think what Paul has in mind is something like Romans 1.16. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
Why is Paul unashamed of the gospel? It's because it is going to be the power of God to save him. So that when Paul faces not just this earthly trial, but when he faces a heavenly trial, he will not be put to shame, but that because of what Jesus has done, he is going to be saved. That when he stands before God, he will hear not guilty. Why? Because he's not guilty? Because he was perfect? No, because Jesus was. Jesus was perfect, and he is the one who died on the cross, who paid that penalty for him. And so Paul can now say with confidence, I will not be put to shame when I stand before God. That is the promise that he has in mind. In fact, it's the promise all of us have, don't we? That if we have placed our faith in Jesus, if we've confessed our sins, turned away from them, turned and trusted in Jesus Christ, we can say with the Apostle Paul, I will not be put to shame. In fact, before God, I'm going to be vindicated. I'm going to be found not guilty. And really, that's where Paul is looking forward to. He's looking forward to say that it doesn't matter what happens, life or death, I'm going to be good with God. I will not be ashamed when I stand before God. But I want us to notice one thing before we get there. That's really where Paul's emphasis lies in this passage. But I want us to notice what Paul says right at the beginning of verse 19. He says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit, this is going to turn out this way. See, Paul actually expects that the prayers that the Philippian church have given are going to be effective for him. They are actually going to turn out for his deliverance from this situation. And the reason I, I want us to see that is because I think so often we don't think that way, do we? We don't think about prayer as being really genuinely effective. See, we, we talk about prayers all the time. In fact, it's become kind of commonplace within uh, especially politicians, right? They'll, they'll be a big tragedy, and then they come out and they'll say, our thoughts and our prayers are with the families, right? And, and then you go onto social media and you see everyone using hashtag thoughts and prayers, and we go, oh, but if you're anywhere as cynical as I am... I look at that and I go, ugh. I roll my eyes because it means nothing, right? These people are saying that and spending zero time actually ever praying. It's this meaningless platitude, this empty word that people say because it sounds nice. And the truth is that that kind of thinking has begun to creep its way sometimes into the church as well. We begin to think that, you know what, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll pray for you. Right? You talk to someone after the service and you'll say something like, oh yeah, yeah, I'll be praying for you. And you go home and forget it completely, right? Because it's just an empty word we sometimes use. Yet that's not how Paul views prayer here. Paul says, I can rejoice because you have been praying for me and I fully expect that God will be at work as a response to what you have prayed. In fact, Jesus gives his disciples this promise. Mark chapter 13, he says, And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. 
Paul says, I understand that God is going to be at work. The Holy Spirit is going to be helping me, and it's going to come through your prayers. Actually, your prayers do have an impact. They do something because they come before the throne room of God Most High. And I think sometimes we forget that. We think about prayer as if it's just something spoken into nowhere, a wish that will never come true. Paul says to the Ephesian church, he says, be praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. See, Paul knows that without the churches praying for him, he cannot do what God has called him to do. What we're called to do is spiritual work, and we are called to do that in the help, in the power of the Holy Spirit. It means we need to be praying. It means we need to consider that prayer is a means of working. It's not what we do at the end when we've tried everything and said, well, I guess all we can do is pray. No, all we can do is pray. We need to be people of prayer. In fact, that's why Paul can celebrate. That's why he can rejoice. I believe God is going to be at work through your prayers. So let me now rejoice as I stand before a trial of life and death. I'm celebrating. Why? Because I know that people are praying for me. There's a confidence there that prayer is going to be at work. Really, And that's where Paul goes with this passage. He makes this amazing claim that no matter what happens to him at this time, that he is going to come out on top, right? Look at verse 21 with me. It's perhaps one of my favorite verses in this book. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I love the bare simplicity of that passage, If he continues to live, it is so that he can serve Christ. If he dies, it is all gain. And he begins to unpack what he means by that. Verse 22, he says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Right, Paul begins to talk and work through this, and it's almost as if he's got this inner dialogue going in his head, and he's kind of speaking it out loud for us to read. You know, he's saying, which one should I choose? And he's saying, it's a hard decision for me. And I think we look at that and we think, really? That's a hard decision for you? Whether to live or die, that's difficult for you, Paul? I think for us, we'd say, of course it's better to continue living. Of course that's better. Yet when Paul looks at that, he says, actually, to depart and be with Christ is far better. It is a far greater gain to be with Jesus. Now, hear me. I I don't think that Paul is suicidal. I don't think he is coming into this with some sort of depressed attitude saying, oh, woe is me. I wish I was dead. No, this is a letter of Paul rejoicing and celebrating. And, And here he says, Looking at the two options, as I consider life and death, here's my my empirical, my unbiased, my objective result. To be with Christ is better by far. 
it is far better for me to go because when I consider what this life has to offer and then I consider the joy of heaven, it is so much greater. See, Paul writes when he actually does come to the end of his life. When Paul is going to die, this is what he writes. He says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. See, when Paul actually does come to die, he says, I am so looking forward to the rewards that are awaiting for me in heaven, for the prize that God himself is going to give me, and not just me, but everyone who has placed their trust in Jesus. That is what he is looking forward to. See, the truth is, heaven will so far outstrip all of the joys of this life that we shall never in heaven look back and think, oh, I wish I had spent more time on earth. That thought will not enter our minds. It is so much better, right? It's like a child, all right? Kids, you're on summer vacation now. And if you were to go to Disneyland, and if you are to, in the middle of Disneyland, think to yourself, I wish I was back in math class. No, of course that doesn't run through your mind. Of course not. That's where you'd rather be. And that will be the same for us when we come to heaven. Oh my goodness, it is so much greater than what we had before. See, I think we need to remember that. Because we think very little about heaven. We think about it very infrequently. And when we do, we often think of it very poorly. Right? We think a lot about all the things we want to do here and now. We think a lot about our bucket list, all the things we want to accomplish, we want to do, all the things we want to experience here and now. I want to travel. I, I want to do these things. I want to see my kids, my grandkids grow up. Look, all of those things are, are good and right. It's not wrong to enjoy what God has created. But hear me, we miss the point when we actually think that what this life has to offer will be greater than the next. See, let me put it this way. Think back to the last wedding you went to. All right, think back to the last wedding you were at, and if you can remember, you, know, you walk into the church, and it's all very beautifully decorated. There's flowers, and there's ribbon thingies all over the place, right? And you come in, and there at the front if you're not late, uh, you know, there, there is the, the bride and the groom, and they're standing up there at the front. And the bride is wearing this beautiful gown, her hair and makeup done exactly the way she wants. The, the groom has somehow managed to put on a suit, and he looks acceptable. But both of them are smiling, right? They're smiling ear to ear, and they're enjoying it, and they profess their love for one another. It's a joyous day, isn't it? It's this picture-perfect moment. But those of you who are married know that's not a moment that lasts, is it? It's not a moment that lasts forever. In fact, it doesn't take long until that perfect picture gets a crack in it. And sin comes in, and arguments start, and frustrations begin to creep into that picture-perfect frame. And the truth is, isn't that how all of our experiences are? 
All of our experiences have that, that, that infestation of sin into it. The, the greatest trip is always, you know, smudged by, by delays and frustrations and it's too hot and you get angry and whatever happens, every single time we try, even if it's perfect for a moment, it soon fades away. See, Paul looks at that and he says, why would I think that what this world, this sin-soaked world has to offer will be greater than what I shall find when I come to heaven? See, that's the point. To be with Christ is far better because we will have an experience of joy in heaven that will continue to last. No argument is going to crack the picture. No more selfish desires. No more problems, no more fights, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death, no more suffering, no more temptation or trials or suffering or anguish. Nothing will get in the way. Why are we so attached to here and now? Why are we so fixated on getting the most we can out of the joys of this life when heaven shall be so much greater? In fact, that's what Paul is looking at. The joys in heaven are never going to be cracked. They are not going to fade. They're never going to get in the way. Sin shall not come into the picture. See, I think sometimes sin has us captured in almost a Stockholm syndrome where we think this is what we really want, right? We're like prisoners who, who think that the greatest thing we could get is a slightly bigger cell instead of the freedom that we shall have in heaven. See, that's what Paul is looking at, and he says, why would I think that this life will be greater? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul says, our home, it's not here. This is the time where we're in exile, where we're wandering away, where we are not at home, but one day we are going to be at home with the Lord, and to be with God shall be the greatest joy that heaven has to offer. That we will one day no longer pray without seeing, but we will speak to him face to face. No longer shall we wonder, what does God want of me? But we can ask him, and he will speak back to us. No longer every time we, we try and spend time with God, but we feel that, that, that sinful nature tugging us away, that will be wiped out, and our greatest joy shall be knowing God for all of eternity. That we shall spend all of our time diving into the unending goodness of who God is. Oh, heaven has so much to offer past what this world has. So do we ever long for heaven? Do we ever long that, that one day we shall be with Christ? Oh, I pray, would it fixate our minds and our hearts that we get to be with Christ that we could say with the Apostle Paul, death is all gain. Not the end of everything good, but the beginning of everything great. But you might say to this, okay, if that's really what you think, why is it that you're not trying to get there right now? Why is it that, that Christians aren't the most reckless people in the world, right? Get, jump on a motorcycle, don't worry about the helmet, let's just go because one day we'll be with heaven, right? Why, why are we continuing to, to try and stay here? Or in fact, let me ask the question another way. Why doesn't God just take us right now? 
heaven's so great. Why, why, don't, why doesn't God just take us right now? And see, Paul actually answers that question for us, doesn't he? He answers that question all the way back in verse 21. He says, for me, to live is Christ. That is my purpose. That is why I'm still here. Verse 22, he says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Verse 24, he says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul says, despite the fact that, yes, it is going to be so much greater when I am with Christ, despite that, I'm convinced, he says, I'm going to remain and continue with you all. Why? So that there might be fruitful labor, so that your faith might increase, so that your joy in God might grow ever more. See, the purpose of Paul's life isn't so that he can accumulate more stuff, that he can accumulate more experiences or whatever. It's actually so that he can serve Christ more and more. In fact, look at how he ends in verse 26. He says, so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Right? Why does he want to return? He says, I want to come back to you, not so that we can hang out, not so that we can do more stuff. He says, I want to come back to you so you can glorify Jesus because of what he has done in my life. See, that's what the calling is of the Christian life. To live is Christ. It means we serve him. We labor for him. We actually want to build one another up so that we all together might glorify Jesus Christ because of what he has done. Paul writes in Galatians, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, what Paul is saying is this, Jesus died in my place and he has given me this new life. That life is his. It's not for me to use however I want. It is for him to live is Christ. It is for him and that is why, Paul says, I'm still alive. So let me then say to you, if you're here today, if you can hear the sound of my voice, if you're still breathing here today, it's because God has a purpose for your life. God has a purpose for why you are still here. It's not an accident. It's not a mistake that you are still alive here today. It's because God has a purpose and a plan for you. It's that you might serve Jesus Christ, that you might know him as your Lord and Savior, and that you might serve him in such a way that other people might come to know him and be built up in their faith. That's why we're still here. It's because God has a purpose for us here and now that we might build up his kingdom, that we might share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. Our life is for him. To be a light to a sin-filled world. To be a people who pray earnestly that God might work and act in our world so that people might be delivered out of darkness. Our lives are for Christ. To live is Christ. So let me close by saying this. I'll invite the worship team up. What's on your bucket list? 
What's on that list of things you say, I want to accomplish before I die? I want to make the very best use of my time. What does that look like? Is it filled with just a whole bunch of more things, more travel, more experiences, more things to do? Can I suggest that we begin to trade those, those fleeting, cracked joys we have here on earth for eternal, greater glory in heaven when we come to see Jesus? Would we work now for the kingdom of God? Would we give ourselves so that our neighbors might hear about what Jesus has done, not just about our vacation? So that when we come to the end of our lives, we might be so practiced in telling about what Jesus has done that the doctors and the nurses might hear it from our dying lips. I pray that our list would look like Paul's. To live is Christ and to die is all gain. Let's pray here together. Oh, Father, we thank you so much. We thank you that we have this eternal hope in you, that we did not deserve what you gave, but Lord, you have redeemed us through Jesus Christ, that any who call on you in faith would be saved. Oh Lord, might that fixate our heart and our lives. Might we be able to say that this life is for Christ and for none other, that we might give ourselves to serving you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen.